Is this play too sad? Yes and no. I could see two different perspectives where it could seem very hopeless. But I think there's something to be said about the realism in it because I think a pattern throughout the play that Shakespeare points out is that life isn't fair. So you don't always get that happy ending. In this play, Shakespeare kind of associates evil with disorder. You know, this battle and all of these things are happening as a result of evil. It's kind of hard to keep up with sometimes and it just seems very like disorderly. Order is so fragile and so unstable. We might have it for a scene, but then in the very next scene, someone could do something that could upend all of it. So nothing is totally fixed or permanent. No one is ever quite safe, which is kind of a horrible thing to consider, but maybe the reverse is true also, that no matter how bad the chaos, order could be just around the corner. You know, order is always within our grasp. It's always possible to create. Hi, everyone. Today you'll hear a chat with me and Miley and Reagan about the end of King Lear, Act 5. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll offer some final words about King Lear, try to summarize the ground we've covered, and ask one final question about the play, perhaps the most provocative one of all. Today's quote of the day is a repeat of something I shared in class. It's from that essay by Harold Goddard. I wanted to end with this because I think it, better than any brief quote I know, does a great job at summarizing the play. It's not actually the words of Harold Goddard. He's quoting a young person, a quote-unquote young person, that's Goddard's own description, who is reacting to the play and who says this, King Lear is a miracle. There is nothing in the whole world that is not in this play. It says everything. And if this is the last and final judgment on this world we live in, then it is a miraculous world. This is a miracle play. It's hard to believe that a play so bleak and full of such suffering could evoke such a response. But for more about how it does this and many more things, let's go into that chat with me and Meili and Reagan. Hi. Hi. Morning. How are you guys? Going, how are you? Good. So you're roommates, right? Yes, we are. Yeah. Uh, can you both tell me how to pronounce your names? Yeah, it's <laughs> Miley. Miley? Uh-huh. And Reagan. Miley and Reagan. Uh-huh. Reagan, I guessed. I just wanted to make sure that we're not confusing it with Regan, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and okay, Miley. Very good. Um, well, hello. Um, we should dive right in. I don't know. I didn't actually really plan... Um, that each of these, because, you know, I'm, we're doing five podcasts for King Lear, mm. an insane amount. And I thought, well, they won't each be an hour, but they each kind of turned into one. So I don't know how long this will take. We, there's a lot to say, of course. Um, and I'm happy, like I said in that email, I'm happy to let the conversation go wherever you guys want it to go. So we're talking about Act 5. Uh, Act 4 ends, remember, with King Lear out in the on the heath on this cliff interacting with the blind Gloucester, Lear, this is the kind of the height of Lear's madness, but also maybe his wisdom. Yeah, Lear gets kind of found slash rescued by Cordelia. And he and she have this wonderful reconciliation scene at the very end. So act four ends with what looks like an ending. You think, oh, Lear and Cordelia, you know, they found each other again, and they've forgiven each other, and they're reconciled. It's a happy ending. Play is not over. Act five begins with this weird scene between Edmund and Regan and Albany, 
why does Shakespeare have Edmund start to get romantic with the Goneril and Regan? Just as readers, how did you react to this moment that Edgar is getting? I mean, he says, I know I'm doing a lot of talking, but he just to remind people, Edgar says um, at the very end of scene one, act five, to both these sisters have I sworn my love, each jealous of the other, as the stung are of the adder. Which of them shall I take, both, one, or neither? So, you know, he, and then he says, neither can be enjoyed if both remain alive. He's very horrible, you know, using them, playing with them. Why is this part of this story of King Lear? Any thoughts about this? I kind of thought it kind of made the play go like full circle because at the beginning it's King Lear asking his daughters to express their love for him. It's kind of the way that Goneril and Regan are expressing their love isn't really true. And so the same is going with Edmund is this love he's expressing for both of them. It's not really true because he's not sure which one he wants. So I think it kind of just comes back to that theme of like expressing love and, yeah. and how that's great and how easy how easily you can manipulate other people kind of how also, like love is more shown than expressed i guess mm-hmm. we see the people making the same old mistakes so some people haven't really learned you know no i actually was thinking about that too and kind of connect to connect with what reagan said i was thinking about how edmund was kind of rejected his whole life because he came out of wedlock yeah. And so he didn't really feel like he was loved fully by his father and his father was kind of ashamed by him. So I thought it was interesting. Like that pattern continues. Like he's never really shown true love. And then he doesn't really seem to know how to give it either. He has this kind of, he just wants to use these women, but it makes sense when you think about it. Cause there's this pattern, like Shakespeare really likes to contrast true love versus just a show of love. And right. I think that's just continuing. And that's something that he's shown in his life. And it just continues in this instance i guess excellent and um yes i love your i mean i'm not going to force anybody to have immense amounts of sympathy with edmund um but it is very good of you to point out that you know like that phrase this poet Auden that i love he once wrote in a poem this phrase those to whom evil is done do evil in return there's a sense that these cycles of violence and abuse perpetuate themselves through the generations i think that's something shakespeare is interested in very good observations yeah I told you I loved this second scene, this tiny little scene, scene two, act five. I don't quite know how to approach it because of how wonderful it is. We should remind ourselves that in act four, Gloucester is suicidal. He's been blinded and is suicidal and asks this person who he doesn't know is his son, Edgar, to lead him to this cliff so he can jump off. Edgar devises this way to trick him into staying alive. And after this, Gloucester expresses his firm commitment to remain alive. I mean, I can't remember the exact, now wasting people's time, sorry. But in Act 4, when he says, right after he's been rescued, and Gloucester says something like, oh, I will endure my suffering until suffering itself cries out enough. You know what I mean? Like, I will live forever, no matter how bad life gets. He very explicitly announces his desire to remain alive. And then here we have this little scene, um, Edgar. Here, Father, take the shadow of this tree for your good host. Pray that the right may thrive. So there's this war between France and the army of Regan and Goneril. If ever I return to you again, I'll bring you comfort. And then Gloucester says, Grace, go with you, sir. Edgar leaves and then runs right back onto the stage in retreat, saying, away. So this is like the whole of the battle. Away, away, old man. King Lear hath lost, he and his daughter taken. Any thoughts about why the battle in this play happened so quickly? Okay, wait here. We have this battle to, to wage. Wait here leaves the stage, runs right back on and says, it's all over, you know? Why is this happening off stage, and why is it happening in an instant? 
again, this is a no, I don't really know what I would say, but any thoughts about this? How do you react? I was thinking about in movies, they focus a lot on the action and like, you know, the battle would be like probably mm. forefront in the action, but it's interesting that Shakespeare really focuses on like these relationships and the conflicts between the characters. The battle is just kind of this little side note of, oh yeah, by the way, there's a huge war going on. Right. And I think it's really interesting because it fo- like it shows how the conflicts between the characters and like relationships is kind of its own battle. And it's kind of something that feels more, I feel like it feels more personal to us. Like that's probably something that we can relate to a little bit better because it's not like all of us are in a war every day, but we definitely have to deal with family relationships every day. And so I feel like it's just kind of his way of speaking to the audience a little bit more and focusing on what he thought was important. No, that's great. He's much more interested in psychology. I mean, he's interested in history too, Mm -hmm. but in the way that it relates to psychology. Also, what do you guys think about so we we this fake ending that Act Four gives us, Lear and Cordelia are reconciled, and then right at the beginning, uh, near the beginning of Act Five, we learn, oh no, they've been captured. So this isn't the ending. Why have we been? I don't want to say the word tricked, but why are we given a kind of happy ending that is then taken away from us? What is your reaction as a reader, or what might be the purpose of this? Again, I'm not fishing for the correct answer, but how do you react? But one thing I've kind of noticed is in this play, Shakespeare kind of associates evil with disorder. I feel like, you know, this battle and all of these things are happening as a result of evil. And so he's just making everything happen really fast. And it's kind of hard to keep up with sometimes. And it just seems very like disorderly. And so I think that just kind of fits his theme there. I love that comment. Order is so fragile and so unstable. We might have it for a scene But then in the very next scene, someone could do something that could upend all of it. So nothing is totally fixed or permanent. No one is ever quite safe, which is kind of a horrible thing to consider. But maybe the reverse is true also, that no matter how bad the chaos, order could be just around the corner. You know, order is always within our grasp. Mm -hmm. It's always possible to create, which is directly relevant to scene two here in Act 5. Because Edgar says, King Lear hath lost, he and his daughter have taken give me thy hand, come on. Trying to pull Gloucester up off the ground again, yeah? Gloucester, again, very defeatist, says, no further, sir. A man may rot even here. Oh, it's so horribly beautiful, this line, I think. It's definitely like, it hits you. And I was kind of thinking about, I feel like we've all kind of had that moment where you just, all of a sudden, it just kind of hits you and you're like, no, like I can't do it anymore. So I feel like it's a personal moment for the reader. And it's a really beautiful way to express that too. No, that's exactly right. It's, I mean, for the most part, we, we um, aren't in the middle of literal wars. We all know what it feels like to not want to get out of bed and and not just because we're lazy. Mm -hmm. We have lazy days, but don't we all, maybe I'm just talking about myself now to myself. (laughs) We all have days where it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Nothing that I do matters. And I might as well just not get up and do anything you know, this is called depression. I think we all have days like this. And yeah, man may rot even here. It's like, I could get up and like do stuff, but it's pointless. So I might as well be pointless here in bed and not get up. I think this is really personal. I think that's a good comment. Edgar, immediately the force of, what would you say? Courage and resolve and endurance. Edgar responds by saying, what, in ill thoughts again? Man must endure their going hence, even as their coming hither. Ripeness is all. Come on, he says. 
what is this phrase? Ripeness is all. How do you, I don't want to ask what it, what does it mean? That's a bad question. What does it mean? A better question is, uh, what is your response to this phrase? Ripeness is all. How do you experience this statement of encouragement? I think it's just about bringing hope back in. So that statement of a man may rot even here is pretty relatable to a lot of people. Like you said, we've all kind of experienced that. Yeah. And that ripeness is all is just kind of bringing hope back into it that like there's downs, but there's also ups after it. And yeah. so there's a matter of enduring and finding hope again. And it's like ripeness is all like, I'm, I don't want, I'm like staring out the window and I was thinking, I don't want to inflict that on you guys. <laughs> Ripeness. What is ri- I don't want to be one of those annoying English teachers. It's like, what do these words really mean? But to me, they're so suggestive. Ripeness. Does this mean sweetness? Does it mean maturity? You know, if you think of a ripe piece of fruit, it's sweet and it, it's finished growing. It's mature. Um, are there any other ways that you guys take this word? I just kind of found it interesting that like kind of ripeness and rot, those kind oh, of yeah. together, like, you know, like you think about mm-hmm. fruit or something. I felt like it was kind of intentional that he used almost opposites there. This is great. So we, a man may rot even here. Edgar says, no, 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 don't think about rotting. Is Edgar saying that, sorry, this sounds like a leading question. I'm asking a question that I don't know the answer to. Is Edgar saying that even if you're old and decrepit and blind and losing a war, you still contain ripe elements, no matter how bad it is for you, there is still some element of sweetness or power or strength. It sounds like I want you to say yes, but that's not how I want that question to sound. I really actually don't know. What are your thoughts about this? When something is ripe, it's ready to be used. Yeah. Especially if we're using the example fruit, like if fruit is ripe, then it's ready to be eaten and serve its purpose. In my mind, Edgar's making the argument that you still have a purpose to serve and fulfilling that purpose is one of the most important things we can do. Yeah. And so you just need to fight that and you need to still be able to do that. Even though it's hard, you need to get up and be able to, you know, serve those around you or do whatever it is you need to do. That's just kind of my take on that. And I really love that contradiction between like the rotting and the ripe. Cause if something's rotting, you're not going to want to touch that. You're not going to eat that. It doesn't have a purpose anymore, but when something's ripe, you can still do what you need to do. It just, it's so important to remember who he's ta- saying this to. How, you know, how much good could Gloucester do in this war? He's blind and old. I think Edgar is saying everyone contains, everyone can serve, everyone can be useful, everyone contains sweetness and purpose and can make someone else, can make someone else's life meaningful. You could switch these words around. All is ripeness. Is that what this means? That everything is sweet. There, there is sweetness everywhere. You know, even in the d- darkest depths, there are sweet things to look at. I, I don't know. I just love it. Ripeness is all. Come on, you know, come on. And then Gloucester, and that's true too. <laughs> What's so great? What's so great about that? Sorry, I'm asking bad questions today. This is a, like read my mind question, but. <laughs> What's so great about Gloucester's response to Edgar's pep talk? And that's true too. I guess he's accepting that you can experience both emotions in life. Yeah, it's true that you can just rot right here, but it's also true that you have a purpose and you you have a life that's worth living. I think it's just good to acknowledge that like both feelings are true and valid and okay to have. Excellent. I like that answer a lot. He, it's so honest about the condition of the world. 
you know? It's not denying the pains, but it's not denying the pleasures. Maybe sometimes we get too focused on the pains and on suffering, and we think, oh, life is horrible. Life is too full of suffering. Isn't life bad? Isn't, aren't our actions purposeless? So that's the kind of seductive power of that outlook on life is because it has a lot of truth to it. But ripeness is all is true too. And Gloucester sees both of these seeming contradictions as simultaneously true. So exactly over and over again in this play, we see chaos and order coexisting, evil and goodness coexisting, rottenness and ripeness coexisting. I think it's just so honest about what life is and how life feels. If someone tries to encourage you to be brave and courageous, you know, be encouraged, be, be persuadable. Okay, let's move on. Where do we want to go now? Oh yeah, I wanted to talk a lot about this no, 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 no speech. So this is scene three. Lear and Cordelia are captured. They're going to be sent to prison. And Cordelia says, we are not the first who, so this is scene three, we are not the first who with best meaning have incurred the worst. For thee, oppressed king, I am cast down. Myself could else could else outfrown false fortunes frown. Shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? I take that just as a statement of kind of defiance. Let's fight, let's fight against this. I, I'm sorry, I really do feel like I'm doing too much talking. What I'll do now is read Lear's little speech here, and then I'll just ask you for your takes on it how it makes you feel, what you think about it, what you think it says about Lear's change as a character, what he's learned maybe, what he wants. Yeah. So here we go. In response to this, Lear says, no, 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 no. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales, and laugh at gilded butterflies, and hear poor rogues talk of court news, and we'll talk with them too, who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out, and take upon us the mystery of things, as if we were God's spies, and we'll wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon." thoughts i really liked this and i was kind of thinking about my own dad and my dad and i are really close and so i just thought it was really like tender how he's just wanting to do all these like normal things with her he's like we'll pray and sing and we'll tell tales we'll laugh we'll hear poor rogues talk of court news and we'll talk with them too who loses who wins who's in who's out like i just thought it was so tender that he's just wanting to do all these very normal things with her and he just wants to have a very normal relationship. And some people you hear like, that sounds so morbid, but like when people are about to die, they think about these exciting adventures they want to go on and they want to go Mm. skydiving or they want to go on these crazy trips around the world. But he just wants to do these very normal things with her and spend quality time with her. And I just thought it was so sweet that he has this new perspective now and he just wants to enjoy the basic, basic joys of life with her. I just thought it was really sweet. Reagan, what do you think? I mean, yeah, I love all that. And there's many things that you said in there that I want to follow up. Let's hear from Reagan first, because I'll, I'll stop. I'll try to stop talking for at least a few more minutes. Um, yeah, to me, this scene is a little heartbreaking because it's almost like he's realizing the mistake he made. Like he mm. kind of cast out the daughter that loved him. And, you know, he's sitting there saying that he'd ask of her forgiveness. And like like Miley said, you know, thinking about all the things that he wished he could do with her. And it's almost like he's regretting the decision he made and wishing he could take it back. And so it's, it's kind of a sad scene. Mm-hmm. It's so bittersweet. 
I think you both have done a great job at encapsul- encapsulating it. It's tender. We we love it because how tender it is to use Miley's word. It's so tender, but it's sad, as you say, Reagan. It's because we know this is a kind of impossible fantasy that they'll never really have this. I mean, or or maybe it's highly improbable. I love that you say uh, that he acknowledges wrongdoing. Like, all I want to do for the rest of my life is ask you for forgiveness. Like, that's how we'll spend our time. We'll pray and we'll sing, and you know, I'll keep asking you for forgiveness. That's like an ingredient in this, in the in the in his golden years. That's going to be the relationship. You will ask me to bless you, and when thou dost ask me blessing, that's great too, isn't it? Right? Like, the child, the daughter, the younger generation. I don't know. Maybe this is slightly narcissistic. I, I don't think so, though is always paying homage to the best things that the parent can offer, a parent's blessing, you know, and the child come in this fantasy of his, the child is coming to the parent asking for that blessing. But it's not this kind of necessarily hierarchical relationship because he turns it around and says, and I will ask you for forgiveness. And we remember in act four that he kneels down in front of her and asks for forgiveness. It's this very kind of equalized, mutually respectful, mutually loving. I also think it's interesting that like at the beginning of the play, it's him offering all his wealth and power to his daughters. Yeah. And now here he is with nothing and he's just wanting, wanting to offer like his forgiveness and his love to his daughter. Precisely. He, he finally knows what is meaningful in life. Mm-hmm. He finally knows what is valuable. It's not land. It's not possessions. It's not even reputation. That that in the beginning of the play, that might even be what mattered to him the most, even more than land and power, his reputation. Remember, he wanted to be seen as someone who was loved, which is one reason why Cordelia's answer at the beginning upset him so much. He wanted a reputation. But now look at what he, he doesn't care. It's like, we'll talk about who's in and who's out, who's famous and who's not, who's popular, who wins, who loses. You know, these um, we'll wear, we'll wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. So there will always, there will be a new king and there'll be new princesses and new princes and people who think that they are powerful and in control, but really these people come and go like the moon, you know, that waxes and wanes. They don't mean anything. It's all ephemeral. You and me, because we have finally found, what could you call it? Love. We have finally learned how to love each other. This love will outlast all of that ephemeral, meaningless garbage like fame, reputation, money. Miley, I love what you say about you and your dad. It's like, all I want is a relationship with my child. One of the beautiful things about this speech is that that can happen in jail. (laughs) That can happen inside these prison walls. We can be imprisoned and still have the most meaningful thing as long as we're together. Yeah, it's so sad. It's definitely meant to tug on your heartstrings. It's just a really beautiful, like you said, bittersweet. It's really, honestly, hard for me to read without tearing up. And we'll laugh at gilded butterflies. (laughs) You know? Like, we... Why do I love that so much? That is not the King Lear that that we know, that we've seen. You know, he wants power and pomp and prestige and aren't I the king and nothing will come of nothing. That's like, what, what, what does he look forward to being able to delight in now? Laughing with his daughter at butterflies. It couldn't get simpler, but yet it couldn't get more meaningful. And that is what means something in this world, you know? Okay. For the sake of time, we'll move on. I love this as if we were God's, I I can't, I can't move on. You you can tell I'm kind of stuck here as if we were God's (laughs) spies. I don't know. I don't know what that means exactly. I mean, I, 
it's not cryptic precisely, but um, there's something wonderfully, wonderfully what about it? Like there's something anointed. It's funny, but sacred. As if that, that he's finally found a version of love that he knows that God will kind of anoint and bless. You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe a silly thought. Okay. Uh, should we move on? So we know now that they have been sent off kind of to their doom, where she has at least. This is what's going on when he sets down this, like, this captain says, if it be man's work, I'll do it. Yeah. Regan starts to act sick, and we find out later that she's been poisoned by her sister. I'm now turning pages. Edgar pops up on the scene, kind of in disguise. There's this weird, and isn't it kind of confusing about these trumpets? I'm always confused about that. No matter how many times I reread this play, come out here when you hear the third trumpet. We'll skip over all that. Edgar appears on the scene, and first in disguise, and then he announces himself. So I'm now in Act 5, Scene 3, line something like 170. Edgar declaring his identity. My name is Edgar, and thy father's son. It's occurring to me now that this might be significant because remember earlier in the play, he says, this is in act two, I think he says, Edgar, I nothing am. He turns into this crazy Tom of Bedlam. And now he's procla- he's re- reclaiming his name. This sounds like an annoying English teacher question. How might this be significant, you know, that he's reclaiming his name? But it, it might be. Any thoughts about this? I think it's kind of learning that he can be someone if, even if he doesn't have much. He felt like he lost a lot of his power and a lot of his reputation. Yeah. Like he wasn't anyone when he stripped himself of all his clothes, which was, you could look at that as symbolic or literal, but he's kind of realizing that he still can be that same person and he still is significant. Excellent. There's a kind of um, refining fire that he goes through. Mm -hmm. He thinks he's Edgar, but who is Edgar, you know? So, well, let's, let's discover this by purging everything superfluous away from me. And then the true Edgar at the end of the play kind of is able to shine. My name is Edgar and my father's son. The gods are just and of our pleasant vices make instruments to plague us. I asked you guys what <laughs> Edgar is smoking. I mean, I didn't phrase it that way, but <laughs> um, the gods are just. His father has been suicidal now twice, has been blinded cruelly. Edgar has been falsely accused of conspiracy and has had to flee where is Edgar getting this worldview from that the gods are just? Yeah. I'm not going to lie. When you gave us this question, like we were both talking about it. Yeah, we asked of, each other. We're, like, <laughs> we were both kind of struggling just to come up with that. Cause it is true. I struggle too. I don't know. <laughs> it is hard to pick at. I feel like this might be a bit of a stretch, but I guess I was kind of thinking about how um, throughout the play, you see that, kind of going back to this idea of like the refining fire, like Lear is kind of stripped of his power and his possessions. We see that Edgar is as well. He had this birthright that was kind of taken from him since Edmund framed him. Right. You see people come out of this and they're better for it and they appreciate the things that they have. So I felt like in a less literal sense of like the gods are just, just in general, I was kind of taking it almost as like the universe is just where you might have these bad things happen to you and you might go through some really terrible things, but in the end you can still be happy and it kind of comes full circle and you can come out of it stronger and still able to appreciate the little things. So definitely a bit of a stretch. I'm not sure if that's exactly what you meant with the question or what Shakespeare meant, but that's kind of what I was thinking is how there's just kind of this full circle 
And it just seems like life just has a way of working itself out and you can find yourself happy in really uncertain, strange circumstances. Yeah, no, I don't want to ever imply that I have, I'm keeping the correct answer secret and I'm wondering, <laughs> can they guess them? You know, no, these are complicated texts. These are hard plays. And people who do this for a living disagree about what is meant in a lot of these instances. You know, the people disagree about why Edgar could possibly be claiming this. So there isn't, I don't want to ever assert a correct answer. I love what you say, uh, Miley. It's like, relates back, directly back to ripe, ripeness and, and rotting, you know, mm -hmm. that both can coexist. I think the word just is important. He doesn't say the gods are kind. He doesn't say the gods are, the gods protect us from suffering. He says that they're just. So I, and I like your extrapolation. I mean, this is a pagan play. It's something we haven't probably talked about enough in our even maddening amounts of uh, conversation about this play. This all takes place in a pre-Christian Britain. So that's why like Apollo is being referred to instead of Jesus, you know? I don't know when exactly Shakespeare imagines this play is taking place, but it's pre-Christian missionaries arriving. So the gods, plural, and therefore the universe, you know, like the cosmos, it might be bad here and now, but there is order, as I said, just around the corner, you know, order isn't extinguished fully, you know, so something will work itself out. I don't, maybe I shouldn't use the passive tone there. We have it within ourselves to, I mean, this is actually what Edgar says, you know, the gods are just enough of our pleasant vices make instruments to plague us. So it's our own evil and our own sins and our own vices that punish us. That's what the gods use to punish us. He has this hope that justice will be brought and that things will kind of work themselves out, that he's gone through a lot of suffering and there's a lot of people going through suffering. It's almost like a hopeful statement that things will work out and that justice will be brought to those that are evil. And, and he, it's important to point out that he is taking matters into his own hands. He's defiantly demanding a duel with his brother to put justice into the world. You know what I mean? So he's not just waiting for this passively, waiting for justice to happen. It gets even crazier on the next page. This is now like line 187. Almost delusionally optimistic, Edgar is at times. He says, oh, our lives sweetness, that we the pain of death would hourly die rather than die at once. Maybe the syntax is slightly old and cryptic there, but life is so sweet that we would, instead of just dying once and being over and done with life, we would agree to die every hour and be reborn and relive it. It's very optimistic, uh, to put it mildly. I don't know. Goneril and Regan poison each other. What do you guys think about the redemption slash repentance of Edmund? So specifically what I'm referring to are these lines later in scene three of act five. This is a round line, like 243, something like that. It starts, Edmund, well, maybe a bit before that, there's an important moment when Edmund hears the news of the death of Goneril and Regan. And he says this very strange thing. I was contracted to them both. All three now marry in an instant because he knows that he's dying. He's been mortally wounded by his brother. Very weird thing to say there. And then later you turn the page. He says, yet Edmund was beloved. And then he says, I pant for life. Some good I mean to do despite of mine own nature. And then he says, quickly, you have to go after this messenger who, who I sent to kill Cordelia. He kind of tries to undo this mistake. So my question is simply, is this repentance convincing? Are you annoyed by it? Does it, does it seem too little too late? Yeah. What, what are your opinions about this? I almost thought of it like when I was a little kid and I would get in trouble for like fighting with my brother or something. 
And I didn't really feel bad about it until like I got in trouble for it until there were consequences. Then I was like, Oh, I I'm so sorry. (laughs) And that's kind of what it seemed like to me. He's dying and he's facing the consequences to a lot of his evil actions. And then he's kind of feeling sorry and trying to repent. And I don't know that it's a coincidence that his repentance doesn't really help anyone else. Like he's trying to go save Cordelia, but she still dies anyways. And so it really only ended up benefiting himself. Like he was able to clear his own conscience, um, but it didn't help those around him. And so to me, it didn't seem like a very sincere repentance. I agree. And I was kind of thinking, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with how he has this pattern or there's in general, there's a pattern of showing like the contrast between true love and just kind of going through the motions, if that makes sense. And I feel like this is just the perfect way for him to end things. There's this contrast of real love and then people just putting on a show. And then at the end, he does that. He puts on the show of, oh, I'm so sorry. I Please go stop them. Please save Cordelia. But then it doesn't result in anything real. I feel like it's just a perfect way for his character to end because that's how the whole his whole life kind of went. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that um, I disagree. It's certainly too little too late. It doesn't help anyone else. We have this opinion about deathbed repentance that it's like, you know, way too convenient. And it's, you know, you can live your life with a get out of jail free card, get away with all kinds of stuff. I'm I'm intrigued by this line, yet Edmund was beloved. And also by the line, some good I mean to do despite of mine own nature. He hasn't, he acknowledges in that line that he hasn't really changed. He still has this evil nature. But there might be at the very end of his life, this isn't anything that's going to whisk him up into heaven. I'm certainly not going to argue that. Might be at the very minimum an acknowledgement of the ways in which he was wrong and flawed. I had this evil nature and I could have been something else. Some good I mean to do despite of my own nature. Yet Edmund was beloved. Why does that intrigue me? I'm trying to think. I guess I should know the answer to that. Um, I guess I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for this character. Because like when I read that, I just think... You know, the people that loved him were Regan and Goneril, like his love <laughs> affair. So like, to me, it's kind of more pointing towards the like evilness of the character. Yeah. Was he really beloved by, by Regan and Goneril? Mm, yeah. Good point. I don't know. Are they capable of <laughs> love, actual love? Yeah. B- based on what we see of them, maybe not. <laughs> Let's now talk about. So um, yeah, it's too late. Edmund says, yeah, go chase them. You can maybe still prevent this death in time, but they can't. Enter Lear with Cordelia in his arms. There was about a hundred year period in uh, the 18th century when the ending of this play was deemed too sad and it was rewritten. People, people who were performing this play just thought, no, this is, this is horribly sad. Mm-hmm. And they made a happy ending in which uh, Cordelia lives. Is this play too sad? I feel like yes and no. I could def I could see two different perspectives where it could seem very hopeless. Like basically everyone dies. Like that's not super that's <laughs> not a very happy ending for sure. But I think there's something to be said about the realism in it because I think a pattern throughout the play that Shakespeare points out is that life isn't fair. Cordelia at the beginning is very honest with her feelings like she doesn't try to fake things like her sisters did and then you see her get punished for it which 
if you're thinking about it, you're like, that's not fair. Like she was honest. She should be rewarded for being honest and not being fake. But instead she's cast out. She's doesn't get her birthright. Yeah. I feel like that's a big theme for Shakespeare is he really just wants to capture how like life isn't fair. And then we have that whole line with talking about like the gods are just, and you see that people are punished even when they're trying to do the right things. But like, that's just kind of how life is sometimes like as depressing as that is. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't just end happy. Life just isn't fair. So you don't always get that happy ending. So I feel like he was just staying true to that theme. By exactly. We know this, don't we? Virtuous living can maybe prevent certain tragedies and a certain amount of suffering, but you still get cancer. You still get in a car accident. You still, you know, might lose your job, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the list of things that could still happen to you, no matter how virtuous, no matter how virtuously you live is almost endless. Right. So Cordelia, you know, you're right, Miley. She didn't deserve any of this. She didn't deserve Lear's reaction in an act one. She absolutely didn't deserve to be hanged for no reason, you know, but sometimes horrible things happen to people who are living well, but that that's part of being on this earth. Uh, Reagan, what would you say? Is the play uh, too sad? For me, like changing the play to make it happier is almost like, you know, telling little kids that they're not going to keep score and everyone gets a trophy and everyone's a winner. Okay, yeah. It's like, it's just not very realistic and it's just kind of sheltering people from reality. Yeah. The reality of this play is just that sometimes there, sometimes like bad things do happen. And sometimes like Miley said, like life is not fair. Um, and you were talking about this in a podcast, the last podcast I listened to how kind of these really old books and old writers can speak to us just as much as or even better than like a contemporary writer. Mm. And so I think that what Shakespeare wrote in here can still reach us. And so I don't think that would be a good idea to like change it up to make it happier. I think he had the way it did for a reason and that's supposed to speak to us. Excellent, very good. So enter Lear with Cordelia in his arms, howl, howl, howl. It's hard to read. I mean, probably even harder to act. And then he says, oh, you are men of stones. Had I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. She's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives. She's dead as earth. Lend me a looking glass. If that her breath will mist or stain the stone, why then she lives? And then Kent says, is this the promised end? You know, meaning like, is this a vision of judgment day? You know, a few lines later, Lear says, this feather stirs, she lives. If it be so, it is a chance which does redeem all sorrows that ever I have felt. Skipping a few more lines, Lear says, Cordelia, Cordelia, stay a little. And then he says, ha, what is't thou sayest? Her voice was ever soft. So it's almost as if he can hear her talking. Like, what did you just say? Her voice was ever soft, gentle and low. I have a question about all of this. He keeps going back and forth between asserting that she's dead. I know when one is dead and she's dead. And then, well, let me, if you can see her breath on this mirror, maybe she's alive. Oh, this feather stirs. And then, wait, wait, what are you saying? Why is there so much uncertainty about whether or not she's dead or alive? There could be a thousand great answers to this question. Why do you think? I don't know if there's like a deeper answer to this question, but to me, it just kind of shows he's almost in shock and not willing to accept that she's dead. Right. And it also might show a little bit that he really is just going crazy. Okay. Um, I think it's just a mixture of grief and just being old and kind of losing it, that he just doesn't know how to take this. 
he's he's certainly you know as we've seen um gone in and out of sanity absolutely for sure Miley, any thoughts to add yeah i think just going along with that like i completely agree with reagan like I kind of just saw it as his sanity was in question for much of the play. So I feel like this kind of just plays into it. And I think it also just kind of plays into like human weakness as a whole. Like we are not perfect beings and we do make mistakes. And I feel right. like this kind of shows like how easy, not like how easy it is to trick us. That makes us sound like we're just like, we're all idiots. That's not true. But I feel like it just captures how like, we are definitely led by our emotions sometimes. And I feel like that can definitely blind us. And I feel like when he's so driven with grief, that's why we kind of see this back and forth. Oh, like maybe she's not. Oh, but no, she is. Like he's hopeful. Obviously he doesn't want her to be dead, but the reality of it is that she's probably not. I think, I think she must be dead, but can I, can I argue, can I, can I make an argument that I probably disagree with and get your takes on this argument? What if she's alive? I mean, at the very end, he says, these are Lear's last words. He says, and my poor fool is hanged. And we know from the footnotes, these footnotes help us out. This could refer to, back in the day, this was like a, a cute nickname for a person that you love, you know? So he's probably referring to Cordelia, but it's interesting that they, he, she shares a nickname with the fool and they may have been played by the same actor. Anyway, and my poor fool is hanged. No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life, and thou no breath at all? Thou'lt come no more. Never, 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 never. Pray undo this button. So he's talking about like his collar is too tight. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her. Look, her lips. Look there. Look there. Stage directions. He dies. What is he pointing to? What does he see? Does he see some? Is she alive? Yeah, I'm. Get when I read that, I thought that he was pointing to some sign of life like he thought she was breathing or something like that so yeah i don't know i guess it's just is he crazy or did he actually see her yeah and we have been shown the ways in which his old blindness kind of metaphorical blindness has been part largely not fully partly cured he now sees remember like we will away to prison and talk about gilded butterflies and so he now sees what's meaningful and what's not meaningful. So part of his blindness has been cured. He now sees things better. This could be a hint that we're maybe supposed to trust him slightly more than we would have in Act One. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Like I don't want to say there's one right way to read this play. I think Cordelia is dead. Why does he die? Some people think he dies of grief. Some people think he dies of joy. Look there, look there. He he, he either sees her breathing or thinks that he sees her breathing. And he's very old and frail and sick, possibly is so overcome with joy that he just dies. There's nothing in the text that will prove that either of these is incorrect. You know, we come to this as a kind of, did I talk about the rabbit duck illusion in class? Oh no, I didn't, it was a different class. You know, part of, part of the genius of Shakespeare is that he gives us often this rabid, rabbit duck illusion. You know, this optical illusion with the rabbit and the duck, this illustration. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it looks like a duck and sometimes it looks like a rabbit. And Shakespeare is often crafting these things purposefully. Is it, uh, is, does he die of joy or does he die of grief? You know, I think maybe the answer is yes. Okay, we're running out of time. Last word. Oh, yeah. We have to talk about the last words. The, I was about to say, any last words? And the last words are the last words. Why are the last words of the play the last words? Lear dies. 
Ken says this wonderful thing, the wonder is he hath endured so long, which I love because it's like, again, it's a testament to human endurance and bravery. It's like, mm-hmm. look at look at what he had to endure, and it's a miracle that he did. Humans are strong and capable of enduring a lot. And then Edgar says this to kind of quote unquote summarize the play. The weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest hath borne most. We that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. Very strange. What do you you guys think? The line, speak what we feel, not what we ought to say, really stood out to me. Because that's kind of how this all starts. All the conflict of the play begins with um, Regan and Goneril speaking what they should have said and what they thought he wanted to hear instead of what they actually felt. Very good. Where Cordelia wouldn't do that. She just kind of spoke. She spoke what she felt. So that kind of wraps the whole play up. It's almost like he's stating like the moral of the story, you know, that words are supposed to be more genuine. Excellent. It's a, yeah. Miley, any thoughts about this? That's exactly what I noticed as well. She, yeah, she said exactly what I was going to say. Words, words are supposed to be genuine. It's a strange more. I don't want to say that it's the moral of the story. This play is kind of more or less about everything. It's about the human condition. This play is about how, I mean, one of the things this play is about is how I like, I really love Albany's phrases in, uh, I think it's act four. No, he says that if, if a heavenly messenger doesn't come down and help us, humanity has to prey on itself like monsters of the deep. This play is about how humans can commit a kind of collective suicide if they're not careful. You know, if they don't master their passions, chaos ensues, apocalyptic chaos ensues. Edgar announces here that the way to prevent that is exactly what you say, Reagan. Make sure that your speech is genuine. It's a very strange and counterintuitive moral of the story. If you want to avert apocalypse, make sure that your speech is genuine. Don't say what people expect you to say, what you quote unquote ought to say. Don't say what you think is required in the moment. Don't say what will yeah, cause you the least pain in a certain situation, think, say what you feel, say what is true. Any last words about the last words before I let you go? I just feel like it's really fitting. I really like the weight of this sad time we must obey. Honestly, I don't know if there's like a super, super deep meaning behind it, but I just feel like that's so beautiful. It gives a really finalizing tone. I had this image of like the sad times just like weighing them down and that just Excellent. Like brings it down, just finishes it. It's beautiful. I'm really glad you emphasized the beauty. It's just so beautiful. Another thing I love is the oldest hath borne most. We that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. So there is the elder generation knows a lot more than we do. And they have endured way more suffering than we have. We'll never endure all the suffering that they did, you know. So maybe we should pay them a little bit more attention or something. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, that comes back to the question you've asked in class before is like, what does the younger generation know, the older generation? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of it just kind of accepting and having a sense of gratitude for the things that they've endured. Excellent. Respect. Mm -hmm. And to see it, you know, a sense of gratitude and respect. This is very good. These are excellent last words. I might be keeping you a minute late. I'm sorry. But these are excellent last words. A sense of gratitude. This is a key word in the play. Ingratitude, you know, this is what Lear rails against. So we must be grateful for this, the wisdom and experience of the past and of our elders. And we just must see it, I think. Sight is a key theme in this play. The oldest hath borne most. Let's just never be blind to that fact. Let's never be blind to that fact. And things will go maybe a bit better if we refuse to let ourselves become blind. Okay, thank you so much. 
Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Today's poem of the day is a poem by Wisława Zimborska, a Polish poet whom I'm teaching in another class. I think this short little poem of hers, as you'll quickly see, has some direct relevance to just a few of the themes in King Lear. It's called In Praise of Feeling Bad About Yourself. The buzzard never says it is to blame. The panther wouldn't know what scruples mean. When the piranha strikes, it feels no shame. If snakes had hands, they'd claim their hands were clean. A jackal doesn't understand remorse. Lions and lice don't waver in their course. Why should they, when they know they're right? Though hearts of killer whales may weigh a ton, in every other way they're light. On this third planet of the sun, among the signs of bestiality, a clear conscience is number one. So this was our last recording about King Lear, the last of five. Five seems like a lot to devote to one of the smaller texts of the course, but I really wanted to do this text justice. I'm very excited and pleased with all of the great insights that the students who participated in these conversations with me brought to the chat, so thanks to all of you. I feel like we covered a lot of great ground. It was my goal to help illuminate exactly how rich and suggestive and profound and beautiful this play is, how nuanced it is, how many meaningful questions it evokes. You know, just to name a few of the ideas that we've covered and that the play touches on, we've asked ourselves questions about love, good and evil, justice, forgiveness, power, nature, animals, comedy and humor, history and the past, parenting and how the generations should interact, hospitality, God and heaven, courage, suicide, suffering, performance, poverty, repentance, moral progress, blindness and sight, ingratitude, revenge, human needs and human wants, honesty, flattery, authority, anger and noble anger. And yet I'm still painfully aware of so many moments in this play of great beauty and insight that even five hours wasn't enough time to get to. There are so many wonderful phrases and lines of this play that I hope you'll never forget. The moment when Cordelia says, no cause, my lord, instantly asserting that any past sin or offense has been forgotten. Edgar saying, ripeness is all. Kent saying, the miracle is that Lear has endured so long. Lear saying, pour on, I will endure. Or Lear saying, I pardon that man's life, and only then asking, what was thy cause? What was the sin that you committed? Lear saying, in boy, go first. Or, I am a foolish, fond old man. Albany saying, that nature which condemns its origin cannot be bordered certain in itself. You know, we can't scorn our history, our past, the thing that made us what we are. And if we do, we will have no inner coherence. We can't be bordered certain in ourselves. Lear saying, reason not the need. Or... So we'll live and pray and sing, right, and tell old tales, or Lear saying, I did her wrong, or monster ingratitude, or unaccommodated man is no more but such a poor bare-forked animal, 
Edgar sang to his suicidal father, What, in ill thoughts again? Man must endure. And then Gloucester sang, That's true too. Just on and on and on. It's one of the plays that is the most densely packed with wisdom and beauty. The scholar Barbara Everett comments on the proximity of good and evil in this play. How evil can exist in a casual phrase, but also goodness suddenly erupting where it shouldn't. This is something also that I want to emphasize as we go on in future texts in this course. No order is permanent and safe. You heard me and Maile and Reagan talking about that. No order is permanent and safe. So first of all, we cannot take for granted the order and comfort that we have. It's not permanent. It's not the default mode, and it's not safe. We have to work to preserve it, and we have to work actively and hard. But the opposite is also true. If our lives are full of chaos, order is not far away. Order is within reach. Ripeness is all. I hope that you will keep reading this text for the rest of your life. In future conversations, we'll be chatting about all of these topics in the contexts of other books. We'll see order constantly revert into chaos and tyranny and suffering. And we'll see all of the remedies that these various characters find and make to help avert suffering and doom. As we say goodbye to King Lear, I just wanted to highlight two moments in the play that give us answers to how we can help minimize or avert individual or collective suffering. Remember what Albany says in Act 4. If that the heavens do not their visible spirits send quickly down to tame these vile offenses, it will come. Humanity must perforce prey on itself like monsters of the deep. I think the play teaches us that heaven's messengers are us, you and me. They are Edgar, they are Kent, they are Cordelia, they are the anonymous unnamed servant who tries to intervene to stop the blinding of Gloucester. Even Lear at the very end of the play, I think, is one of heaven's messengers when he asks his daughter for forgiveness, when he finally declares a kind of true love for his daughter. All of these people take noble and risky and self-sacrificing action to make the world better. It's up to all of us to act nobly, or else humanity will consume itself. I think the phrase that Edgar uses, ripeness is all, should be posted, printed, stapled, tattooed, everywhere. I think you should never forget this phrase. Sweetness is everywhere. There is sweetness in everything, even in the midst of suffering. There is so much sweetness in life. So much sweetness, in fact, that I am left to conclude with the question, is this play even a tragedy? It is certainly one of the bleakest, one of the most violent, one of the most depressing. But is it a tragedy? Is it about the fall from greatness of a person. I think you could argue, I have been persuaded to believe, that it's about not the fall of a person, but this person's moral and spiritual rise. Lear gains much more than he loses, and he loses almost everything. But I think that the word to describe what he gains is nothing less than salvation, a kind of spiritual salvation best embodied in his love for Cordelia. His love sets him free. His love sets him so free that he will be happy to end his days in prison, wearing out packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. Look at how his vision arguably gets more acute. He goes from being totally blind to the truths that are staring at him in the face, 
to being able to see tiny feathers or buttons on his collar or the, the smallest motions of Cordelia's lips. He can see literally and spiritually better. And this sight, this kind of moral sight, is everything. Is this play a tragedy? Maybe not. The next recording will be between me and a couple of you about some chunks of Cervantes' novel Don Quixote, which I'm really excited about. In the meantime, keep reading, and mostly just keep enjoying the readings. (laughs) ¶¶ 